Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen as we go through the book of Revelation. My name is Dr. Josh Harwick, and I am the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. And over the next few months, we will be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at the church uh, through our website, dequeen.church. There on our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. We can't wait to hear from you. Feel free to drop a like or share of this podcast if you find it helpful, and that will help us out tremendously. In this episode, we are beginning in Revelation chapter 11, uh, as we finished up last week with Revelation chapter 10. Today, uh, if you will look in Revelation 11, John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, some commentators who instruct taking this portion here of Revelation uh, as interpreting it uh, literally Uh, have just spent a significant amount of time interpreting the previous section figuratively. Now, those who do this don't give a reason for switching between forms of interpretation, jumping from figurative to literal, other than, well, I tend to think this is literal. Uh, That's the majority of what they think here. Uh, Now, it's my personal conviction that we must interpret the whole of the text the same unless otherwise informed by the text itself. Because if I rely on my own thoughts rather than the authority of Scripture, I run into the problem of trusting the authority of my gut feeling more than the authority of God's Word. That is a very dangerous place to be for anyone seeking to model a life depending upon the divine inspiration of Scripture rather than upon my own, inter- my own inspiration of Scripture. And so now back to the text. Uh, talking about the temple. The temple uh, is seemingly a, a reference to the church here. The believers, God's church, uh, are in addition called God's temple by Paul on three separate occasions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. So then, if the temple is representative of the church, who are the believers? Uh, then anyone outside the temple is an unbeliever. Thus, the nations, uh, as referenced here in the passage, seem to refer to unbelievers themselves. Those outside the temple will trample the holy city for 42 months, which is about three and a half years. So the temple and the holy city were often used interchangeably throughout Scripture to mean the heart of the people of God. Uh, and so they, they, they are going to be trampled by uh, the unbelievers. This word trample here means to severely harm through subjugation. So, so harm coming through oppression, subjugation. So it seems the unbelievers will persecute the church of God severely for 42 months. Now verse 3, the voice says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. 
So these two prophets here, they prophesy for about 42 months as well, just as we saw in the previous couple verses, about 42 months, uh, because 1,260 days is about 42 30-day months. Now, some suggest that these two guys are Moses and Elijah, representing the entirety of the fulfilled scriptures in Jesus. Uh, the wonders they perform uh, are similar to both uh, what Moses and Elijah do, and, and both were present at the transfiguration uh, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, verse 3. In addition, there was a prophecy about the coming of Elijah in Malachi chapter 3. However, Jesus said that the coming of Elijah was fulfilled in John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, and Luke chapter 1, verse 17. But what we see is, is very important here, as is done throughout the book of Revelation. The passage specifically does not name the witnesses. They're simply representatives of God communicating his message to the world. And so that's important. When we try to figure out something that's not said, we're taking our own assumptions, our own thinking and applying it to what is not present in the text. And so these guys aren't named, and that's important. They're not named because what is important is the fact that uh, they are representatives of God. Notice in verse 3, this is most likely God speaking because of the authority that is coming from him. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Uh, So the emphasis is on uh, uh, the authority and the power emanating from God to the witnesses. They are called olive trees and, and, and lampstand. And both of those are mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4. The olive tree being having a plentiful supply. The lampstand shining light into the darkness. Uh, also, a lampstand is similar to the wording in the beginning of the book of Revelation where it's used to speak of the church. So it would suggest that the prophets are representative of uh, a part of the church uh, speaking of repentance and judgment. There are actually some commentators, some scholars who believe that these two witnesses are uh, actually large groups, two large groups of Christians. Um, And we'll get to that more in a minute. Um, Possibly even referring the, the lampstand language here, referring to the seven churches from the beginning of the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, some of those commentators believe that or suggest uh, that the two churches who did not receive any condemnation from Jesus are uh, possibly the uh, uh, groups that are mentioned here as the two witnesses. Um, now look at verse 5, what occurs, the further description we get of these two guys. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So this, the death that is rained from the mouth of the prophets could be either physical or spiritual. Now, if they're preaching the gospel, then... Their opposition would meet spiritual death through a refusal to believe. However, if the harm brought against the prophets is physical and their death is physical, as we'll see in a minute, then the death of their enemies could also be physical here and not just spiritual. Or it could be both physical and spiritual. 
You see, the authority and power given to the witnesses extends even further. They will also have power to bring an undisclosed number of plagues on the earth. Now, that is very unique. At different times throughout the book of Revelation, as the judgments pour forth, we see specific numbers mentioned. Four writers, a quarter of the earth, a third of the earth, uh, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. But here we have an undisclosed number of plagues that these witnesses can pour out, it says, as often as they desire, as much as they want on the earth. Now look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. When the witnesses finish their responsibility of communicating God's message, their invulnerability expires and they are killed by the beast. It says the beast comes from the bottomless pit and makes war on them, conquers them, and kills them. The beast, another creature from the bottomless pit, and as with the others, he's coming from the pit as do those in opposition to the ways of God. He comes and makes war against the witnesses. Now, this term, make war and conquer them, those two terms there, That leads some to conclude that the witnesses are representative of the church itself. And so making war is used to speak about a corporate group and not simply two individuals there. Uh, And whichever way it is, whether it's two literal guys or whether it's two large groups, the text doesn't specify. Uh, But the bodies of the witnesses are, the witnesses are still killed and the bodies are left in the streets. It says the streets of Sodom and Egypt for everyone to gawk at. Now, we know Sodom was a place of great wickedness, and Egypt was a place of great oppression. But it's also a point of note that both Sodom and Egypt suffered great judgment as a result of their own decisions. Now, the mention of the city where Jesus was crucified leads some to conclude that this could only mean Jerusalem. But in John's description throughout the passage, John goes out of his way to not say the name. Jerusalem. Instead, he uses vague, general phrases. This could mean that the great city, Sodom, and Egypt could simply be referring to society, the world's culture as a whole, as its many names used here seems to imply that Jesus was crucified by unbelievers in an unbelieving world that is full of wickedness and oppression. Uh, Verse 9. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, the leaving of the bodies in the street, that is a a sign of great shame for the dead and celebration of the world. And the torment there in verse 10, that word there, that uh, the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, This could be the rainlessness, this could be the fire, this could be the plagues, or it could simply be their preaching itself. For the overtly unbelieving, preaching of the gospel is torment. 
And everyone, cel everyone in the world is celebrating the death of these guys. Now, we see this kind of merriment even in culture today where some voice joy at the terminal sickness or death of someone with an opposing viewpoint to their own. People celebrate, people post online, people talk about uh, how happy they are that this has happened. And it's, it's a sickness. It's, a, it, it's devastating hate. It eats away at a soul of an individual. And this is, is amplified here in Revelation 11, verses 9 and 10, that at the death of these two guys, at the death of these two individuals, or whether it's two groups, there's massive celebration, almost like Christmas. They're exchanging presents with each other because these people have been killed. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So for three and a half days they laid uh, dead. Now the number of days there could be a parallel reference to the number of years that the prophets preached. And the witnesses, they are resurrected. And everyone watching is struck with great fear. The celebration instantly turned to terror. The source of the voice speaking is not identified. And neither are those who heard it. The hearers could be everyone watching the bodies, or they could simply be the witnesses themselves. It doesn't tell us. We know that uh, they are spoken to specifically and told to come up here. The witnesses are told to come up here. Uh, but who hears the voice, we're not totally sure. It could just be the witnesses, or it could be the whole crowd, similar to when Jesus or when God spoke at Jesus' baptism and, and people heard what was going on. Uh, the voice says, come up here, and they went up there. Either way, the witnesses, they're told to go to heaven, to come to heaven. And they did while everyone else stood watching. Now, some people believe that this is a reference to the rapture, and those people believe that the rapture uh, will occur at the end of the tribulation. Um, they're called post-tribbers, post-tribulation rapture believers um, because of this reference here. This, this reference, though, does not um, uh, identically parallel the reference from Paul in Thessalonians. Uh, but that's what some believe. Uh, but the specific uh, uh, context here is these who are uh, testifying to the word of God, issuing forth miracles on behalf of God. They are killed uh, by a, a great enemy, uh, the beast here, and then they raise from the dead, they rise from the dead, and they are told to come to heaven. Everyone watches them go to heaven in a similar way that Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. He rose and was hidden from uh, the, the onlookers by a cloud, and he went to heaven as well. Now look at verse 13. Their resurrection wasn't the only thing that occurred at that moment. Look at verse 13. John writes, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, he mentions a tenth here. Now, a tenth is a unique mention in that this is the only reference to that number in the book of Revelation. It's still a significant portion, though maybe not as devastatingly crippling as, say, a quarter 
of the world's population or a third of the world's population. Similarly, the 7,000 dead is also an incredibly large number, though it's rather small in comparison with the quarter of the world's population and a third of the world's population being killed previously. And the remainder of the people who are still alive exhibit great terror, and they surprisingly give glory to God. This could mean that some or many came to faith as a result of what's just happened. However, it's not said that they repented and committed to Christ. Similarly, in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, we see Nebuchadnezzar praise, and it says, give glory to God. But then, a few verses later, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 4, he's right back worshiping his own fake gods. So, it is possible to recognize God and his greatness, and yet still refuse to follow his plan by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Notice, though, this is the end of the second woe, the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. This entire section, starting when the sixth trumpet was blown in Revelation 9, verse 13, all the way through here, Revelation 11, verse 14, this is the second woe. The final one is immediately following, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. With the blowing of the seventh trumpet, loud voices ring out in contrast to the silence that accompanied the breaking of the seventh seal. When heaven was silent for 30 minutes, here there's loud noises. In addition, there's a great number of voices yelling in unison. This call of praise, rather than a single loud voice from a mighty angel or a single voice like a trumpet. This is a moment of great praise that is accompanied by the 24 elders joining in the praise opportunity. God is praised because he is universally in charge, and nothing can change that fact. Verse 17. They said, the 24 elders said, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, right off the bat, notice it says, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. There's not a mention of is to come, because the time yet coming is now, has now come with the seventh trumpet. And he says he has taken great power and begun to reign. This taking of great power, this uh, reigning, uh, they have already begun. God did it sometime in the past. Assumption dictates that because of God's greatness, the taking is now and always has been. But look at verse 18 there. It says, The nations raged, but your wrath came. God's wrathful anger is a response to the sinful anger of the world. The root words for both rage and wrath come from the same uh, Greek word family. So the punishment, God's wrath, fits the crime the sinful raging, just as they do with the mention at the end of verse 18, destroying the destroyers. And so they receive their just reward because of their refusal to believe. 
and we see that uh, the time has come in verse 18. A time is referenced as having been set aside as the appropriate time for judgment. And when that time is reached, God's wrath poured out on people who refused to believe. He kept his wrath at bay until the appointed time. And then we get that interesting thing. Not only is sin judged in this moment, not only is sin paid, uh, rewarded for uh, uh, the sin, not only are people rewarded for their sin in this moment, but God's people are rewarded as well. Rewarding your servants, prophets and saints who fear your name, both small and great. So all people, believers and unbelievers alike, will be rewarded accordingly. Finally, look at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The ark of the covenant represents God's presence that is now accessible by all, not just the priests, as is written about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. The expressions of nature are are expressions of celebration. God's presence can be seen, whereas previously it could only be felt or sensed. Now it is seen by God's people. Thank you for for checking out this episode of our End of the World series, podcast series, as we examine the book of Revelation verse by verse. I hope you'll join us again in the next episode as we. Look at Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and what God is going to be doing in those moments. Something very unique and special. I cannot wait to examine that with you. So join us in the next one. uh, But feel free to like this or share this if you found it helpful at all. If you have any questions or comments, uh, uh, send us uh, an email or a call. You can find all the information on our website at dequeen.church of how to get in touch with us. And I will catch you in the next one.